and to continue what he started. Um, so I want to pray. I want to pray before we get into it, um, and uh, we'll go from there. Amen? Lord, we just thank you, Father God, that, um, that you're here with us. We thank you for the worship. We thank you for every heart and soul that is here, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity. Uh, but most importantly, man, we thank you for all that you've done on that cross, Lord. And um, as we move forward into Easter next week, we'll, we'll dive into uh, everything that was done and said and, and spoken of and prophesied uh, there on that cross, Father God, and the resurrection itself. Without the resurrection, we're, bunch, uh, we're just a bunch of crazies. Uh, but, we, but we know that you resurrected, Father God. We know that you conquered the grave and that death couldn't hold you. Uh, and we're so grateful for that. And I pray that you would have uh, your hand on this message um, and that you would speak through me. Use this earthly broken vessel to be used for a heavenly purpose. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 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 I've, I've always been a little bit uh, puzzled about Palm Sunday. Um, even growing up as a young child, growing up in the Orthodox Church. Uh, as many of you know, I'm Egyptian, and so we grew up uh, Greek Orthodox, very um, uh, reverential, uh, very reserved, um, a lot of legalism into it. Um, so there wasn't a lot of freedom when it came to some of these bigger holidays, obviously Easter and Palm Sunday, as you can see, the, the, uh, the palms everywhere. These are some of the church things that the, the Greek Orthodox Church will do out of palms. Uh, this is a great example of what they did in Jerusalem for Christ's entry. I mean, they designed certain things. They laid down leaves as he walked up into the city. Uh, so our church and our family, Julia, did a couple of these. You may see little crosses and bracelets and rings. Those are the exact same things that they did those days um, for that day and certainly after that day. So um, for me to understand that the king was coming into the holy city, um, uh, on one hand, we see a great opportunity. This is the chosen people. This is the chosen city. And here comes the chosen one riding into the city uh, on a donkey. Um, many of us question that. How can the king of kings and the lord of lords come riding in on a donkey? And we'll get into all those things. But um, indeed, the triumphal entry turns very sorrowful very quickly um, for a couple of reasons. Um, Jesus is looked on as the Savior, the Messiah. I mean, uh, uh, everybody in the city of Jerusalem is expecting him to come into the city, wipe out all the Roman government, and then rule right there and there. They had no idea his true destiny. They lost an opportunity to understand the exact Savior's purpose. And when we look at him riding into a donkey, we're not thinking of a general riding on a war horse or coming in on a stallion or, um, you know, this triumphant king, you know, coming into the city, ber berating the city and changing everything that is, uh, that is there with the current government. He's very subdued. And when, Je and when Jesus comes up to Jerusalem and it's in his sight, he begins to break down, literally begins to weep on this donkey for the city. The triumphal entry is essential in God's plan. And I can tell you, so is the weeping is essential in God's heart. Because what we're going to find out that this was 
Not what everybody expected, certainly not Jerusalem and, and the chosen people, um, and certainly not the Pharisees. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn uh, to the Scriptures in Luke chapter 19. We're going to have most of them up for you, but I'm going to go back and forth. Uh, I don't expect Jerry to, to keep up with me, and that's okay. But we're going to read through it once. Um, Luke chapter 19, say amen when you get there. Man, you guys are fast. Amen. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, he, he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called Olives. And that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite of you, where as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat on. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus says the Lord, say it to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent uh, went their way and found it just as he had said to them. He was referring to the colt. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners came out and said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And then he said, the Lord has need of it. So then they brought him to Jesus. They're referring to the colt. And then they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road as he was drawing near to the descent of Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered to them, excuse me, answered to them, saying, I tell you that if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to stop there just for a second. First and foremost, Jesus is going up to the chosen city, to the chosen people. Bethany and Bethpage are small suburbs in the midst of Jerusalem. After Jesus has said this, he went ahead of them. I want you to understand that Jesus knows exactly what he's expecting. There's nothing that's about to surprise him going up to the city of Jerusalem. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows how he's going to be betrayed. He knows how it's going to end. He knows the beginning from the end. And going up to Jerusalem was actually literal because where they were, they had to go up in elevation. And the elevation ranged from 850 feet uh, above sea, sea level at Jericho to almost 2,500 feet above sea level for Jerusalem. And, the, and um, this was a road that was pretty dangerous. We're talking about the same road that the Good Samaritan and the parable was spoken of, where they beat this man and uh, several people passed him on the side of the road until the Good Samaritan stopped and helped him. But that wasn't any concern to Jesus and the crowd that pilgrimed up to Jerusalem for the Passover. As he went ahead, he said to them, carefully correcting his followers, followers to go the opposite way and you'll find a cult, a prophecy. You'll find a cult. We're referring to the donkey that he rode into. He tells them, loose it and bring it here. And if anybody asks you, tell them that Jesus or the Lord is in need of it. Pastor Vaughn mentioned last Sunday 
how God will use people completely out of a situation to fulfill his plan so that he would be glorified. You had no idea what's going on in a, in a certain part of your life, but once it's all said and done, you look back at it and you say, wow, God had his hands all over it. Here he sends his, his, his apostles, I mean his disciples, the opposite way to find a colt. And indeed, he, he prophesies that the owner's going to ask, where are you taking the colt? He says, just tell him the Lord needs it. What's crazy for me is not only that it's supernatural, but I wonder if Jesus was specific and asked you of something that he was in need of it, would you be willing to give it up? Some of us wouldn't even give up our girlfriends or boyfriends. If God says, hey, that relationship is not fruitful, I'm in need of it. Maybe God says, hey, that job is before me. I'm in need of it. Most of our response is, man, I just made a hundred grand here. What are you talking about, God? How are you taking this away from me? You're willing to give up what God has, what God asks? Most of us would argue when the Lord makes this kind of demand on something that belongs to us or that's important to us. But we'll come into church and pray, Lord, I give you everything. I'll surrender all. Let me have that boyfriend of yours. He's not right for you. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not talking about that. I don't want you to get that personal. I want a relationship with Christ, but not that close. Maybe there's an addiction in your life, and God says, let me have that. Surrender that to me. That belongs to me. I'm in need of it. And you hold on to it. I caution you, because what God asks for, he's got a plan that's way beyond our thoughts. The Bible tells us clearly that his plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. They grab this donkey, they bring it back to him, and before he sits on it, they lay their clothes on the donkey, and they begin to lay a path up to Jerusalem with palms and clothes. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people completely began to spread their cloaks on the road. I want you to picture this. This is a group of people traveling with the Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. They're expecting an immediate change in the city as they're walking up with him. They've traveled for miles with him. And here they are doing what? Putting their clothes down. Taking their needs off. Taking the necessities off. I'm not even comfortable in a tank top, let alone take my shirt off and lay it down for my wife to walk over. Can you imagine the reverence and the honor that's taking place right here and right now? These people knew what was about to happen. They knew what was going on. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut from the fields and pulled down palms. John's gospel indicates that people were going out to meet him, running out of their homes, and to meet the procession with palm branches. Waving them in the air, John 12, 13 says. This is the ultimate in praise and reverence for God Almighty. I just read to you in a, in a, in a, in a, in a scripture where the Pharisees now are in this procession leading up to Jerusalem, and they tell him, teacher, teacher, 
rebuke your disciples. They're literally proclaiming that God is God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and the Messiah is here. And the Pharisees now are frustrated with, with these claims. In verse 38, it says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, That I tell you, if I keep them silent, that the, that the stones would cry out for me. Now that might trip you out a little bit, because if you don't understand the Bible, or you don't understand the meaning, what he's saying is, if my disciples keep quiet, then the creation will praise the creator. In the Old Testament, we hear of stones speaking to God Almighty. He doesn't need you and me to worship him. He would love it. He created you for it, but he's given you free choice to do what you will. Now, you can come to me humbled, and I'll cleanse you, or you can be prideful and never praise the king of kings. I'll share one example with you in Genesis 4.10. Here's where Cain kills Abel and the ground cries out to the Lord. The Lord is asking Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? The blood that is on the ground cries out to me. It's the same thing. Creation praising the creator. In Joshua 24.27, Joshua says, these stones shall be witnesses to all that God has spoken to us. Therefore, it should be a witness and a reminder to you, lest you deny God. The Old Testament is full of memorials. The Old Testament is full of places where they left stones as a memorial where God spoke, where God touched people, where God healed people. It's no different today. If mankind doesn't praise God, the creation that he created would praise him. Up until now, Jesus was very guarded about his identity. In all of scripture, we see um, him using the term Christ or Messiah very little, or maybe as anointed one. He most of the time throughout scripture, up until this point, identifies him as, as himself as only the son of man until the triumphal entry. Because he knows what's at hand. The challenge is if Jesus would publicly or previously acknowledge that he was the Messiah, he'd have some political implication and this day would have never happened. You know Psalms 118 verse 24, this is the day the Lord made, I will be glad and rejoice. This is the day he's talking about. This is the day. The triumphal entry is the day that was prophesied 600 years ago by the psalmist. So when you sing that song or you repeat that verse, this is the day they're talking about. The triumphal entry. His claim as king is now clear. Indeed, the Messiahship has now been opened and acknowledged. The challenge is he's about to participate with death. It's funny because many people asked him who he was just after this and leading up to this. In Luke 22, verse 67, Pilate asked, are you the king of, G of the Jews? Jesus answered and said, 
as you say it is. And the people looking on him and saying, hey, save yourself. If you've been able to save others, save yourself. He's now on the cross, not claiming he was the king. Are you the chosen one? The inscription on the cross itself said, King of kings and the king of Jews. See, what we don't understand is Jesus wasn't crucified for his good works. He was crucified because he claimed to be the king of kings. That's why he was crucified. Kings didn't like it. Governors didn't like it. The Romans didn't like it. Every other people that he went into didn't like the fact that he was claiming or that others were claiming that he was the king of kings and, and the king of the Jews. I want to move on. If you've got your Bibles, let's go right into Luke 19, verse 41. We talked about the triumphal entry, what they did, how they did it, how they brought the colt to him, what was being said as he was coming up to the city. Now I want to tell you exactly what happens when he gets eye of the city. In verse 41 it says, now as he drew near, he saw the city. And he wept over it. Saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wait a minute. This is perhaps the greatest moment in history right now, so far. And he's on a donkey, and they're praising him, and then saying, this is the Messiah, he's the king. The Pharisees are like, what are these people talking about? And he's on this donkey leading up to the city, and then he just begins to, to break down, to cry. Complete sorrow. The Greek term uses this weep as utter sorrow. A sad scene, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, comes near the city of Jerusalem and weeps over the holy city. This was the capital of God's nation during the, 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 the reign of King David. This was, this was the, the, the epitome of the entire chosen people. This was the capital of the Bible. And in Revelations it says that that city will be the new heaven on earth. That would be the capital of Jerusalem. And here he is crying as he walks up to it, as they walk up to it. Jesus is weeping over the city as he entered into it. And he says, if thou hast known that at least in this day for the things which belong unto you, your peace, that I have hid from your eyes. You may wonder, Ray, well, why, why, why would he be crying? They haven't betrayed him yet. Yeah, he knows the future. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows what he's up against. He was weeping over the tragedy of a lost opportunity. The entire city and all the Israelites that assembled in Jerusalem for the, pa for the Passover missed the entire opportunity 
to be visited by their Savior and to know that he was the one. Instead, receiving them, instead of receiving him, they killed him. He was weeping because he was not willing that any should perish. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is good and acceptable in the, in the sight of our God, Savior, who have all men to be saved and all come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that man is Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He doesn't want any of these people to perish. And he's heartbroken coming into the city as he's being separated, celebrated because what's going to happen is they're going to deny him because he doesn't come in and turn over the, the Roman government. They're not willing to look at living beyond the grave. They don't see the definition of living beyond the grave. They didn't know their time of visitation. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slacking concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is heartbroken. Many of us say he died of suffocation because he's being crucified. It's not the case. You'll learn in Easter... One of his last words is, Father, into your hands I give my spirit. He voluntarily left. In fact, most of the crucifixions would break the crucifier's legs so they'd have to collapse and their lungs, they couldn't hold their lungs open so they would suffocate. But the prophecy in the Bible and history tells us not a single bone of Christ was broken on that cross. He gave himself up willingly. He's coming up to city Heartbroken because he knows this city is going to betray him. They're not ready to live beyond the grave. Pastor last week talked about there were three different people coming up to the casket. Some came up to the casket, wanted nothing to do with it. Others came into the casket, got into the casket, but weren't willing to come out of the casket and live beyond it. But King David, who perhaps did one of the most horrific sins of all of history, repents with such passion. He lives beyond the grave. And the Bible tells us that God said that he was a man after his own heart. You know what that should tell you? That should give you all hope. That should give each and every one of us hope that there's nothing that you have done that God will not forgive you for. Nothing. Here's a man who slept with Bathsheba, who took her husband out, who murdered her, who, I mean, you, you name it. I mean, the, one of the worst plots in history. And God says he repented so sincerely that he was a man after my own heart. This triumphal entry is filled with tears because God knows these people are going to betray him. A willing heart makes the difference between peace and destruction. A willing and humble heart will make the difference between living beyond the grave or just living a life of death. We talked about it last week. There's some things that in your life that need to die for there to be life. Period, point blank. 
You can't get the apple seed out of an apple without eating the apple. You cannot have new life without death. It was true for Jerusalem just as it's true for the individual soul. If you decide to turn from your sin, if you decide to turn from self-righteousness in order to trust Jesus for your salvation, the Bible says that you will be saved. The Bible says that you can live beyond the grave. The Bible says that you can have peace here on earth thinking about the future in heaven. And it doesn't matter if it's tragedy, sickness, debt, a spouse, a husband that's lost, whatever it might be, if you do not have a heavenly mindset, you will never be able to live beyond the grave. You see, this earth is temporary and everything in it is. And if you live your life here on earth understanding that everything is temporal, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you too can live beyond the grave. Let's move on. Verse 48 of Luke 19. So we talked about the entry. We talked about how he was coming up to the, to, to the city. We talked about what they were saying as he was coming up to the city. And then immediately goes from praise and worship and, and celebration to complete, utter sorrow. And Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Now he gets into the city. And in verse 45, then he went into the temple and began to drive those who bought and sold in it. Let me give you a picture. Jesus goes into the city, goes straight to church, straight to the temple. I don't know if he was going to pray. I don't know if he was going to, um, to preach or to teach, but what he found in the church bothered him. It says, and he drove those out who bought and sold it, saying to this, to, saying to them, it is written that my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hearing him. In layman's terms, Jesus goes into the church. He is hot. There's things going on in the church that he's, that he's just not comfortable with. I'll give you a historical background to it. Most of these... Um, swap meets, if you would, or merchant sales in the Old Testament were done on the outside of the temple. Here, we're talking about this whole sales and merchants or swap meet, if you would, being done inside the temple. Two reasons. Only the Jewish were able to go into the temple. The Gentiles can only go on the outer skirts of the temple. That make sense? And the reason they all had to come to the temple is they had to do a money exchange. So what people took advantage was I'll sell my pigeons, I'll sell my doves, I'll sell my crafts, I'll sell my baskets here at church while people come in and make money exchanges. The money exchanges were for the Gentiles who had a Roman coin and needed a Jewish shekel for the taxes. Does that make sense? So now you have all these people coming in to exchange their money for a Jewish shekel compared to a Roman coin, and they have a chance to buy certain things. And this is what he witnessed. He walks into this church, and he sees them exchanging money and selling. 
And the Bible tells us that he drives him out. He cleanses the temple. There were some dead people in church. There were some people not willing or able, living beyond the grave. There's people, there's things that people were doing in the temple that were not of God, for God, and with God. So when he cleanses the temple, I want you to look at it in a spiritual mindset. Here he is physically coming into this church, throwing chairs around, because he's not pleased with what's being said, what's being done, and the people's actions in the church. But I'm going to challenge you, because there's more than one temple. The Bible tells us of the Old Testament and the temples. The Bible tells us that there was a physical temple, just like this little warehouse is, that we call a temple. We've invited God to be here. We, we built these four walls in the Old Testament. You had to have a temple to have a visit with God, and that's where God dwelled in the old temple, in the holiest of holies behind the curtain. That's one temple that Jesus can clean. The other temple we need to understand is the body of Christ. That's another temple. That's us as a community. That's us as individuals. Sometimes God will cleanse us. Lastly, the last temple that can be easily cleansed is our temple. You've got the physical temple, you've got the building, the structure, the brick and mortar, you've got the community of the church, the body of Christ as a temple, and yourself as a temple. Scriptures tell us, for which in he worked, having raised him up out from the dead, and people having caused him to sit down at the right-hand side of the Father in the heavenlies, all rulership and authority and ability and lordship of every name being named out for him. He was subjected to all things under his feet, and he gave them head over all things to the church, which is the body, and it's the fullness of each one being filled with the Spirit in these things. There's three types of churches that Jesus needs to clean. There's three, three types of churches that Jesus cleanses for us to have an opportunity to live beyond the grave. The physical church, us as a community, and yours truly. Truth be told, the most difficult one is us. It's real easy for us to look around and, oh man, you shouldn't be doing that. Oh, watch out. Trouble's coming your way. But to look inside and say, man, I got to deal with this anger. This is not right. Lord, cleanse me of this. This hinders me. God willing, for most of us, we'd be willing to be cleansed. Most of us don't understand the value and the benefit of living beyond the grave. To having a heavenly mindset. And not living in this world and dealing with it in such a, uh, the word I'm looking for is such a, a personal 
a personal issue. Most of us take everything so personal. But again, I, I caution you to understand that if everything in this world is temporal, why do you hold on to things for so long? Why is it hard for us to give up an addiction? Why is it hard for us to give up uh, frustration? Why is it difficult for us not to be able to forgive somebody? That's poison in our hearts. Jesus needs that to be cleansed. Your temple needs to be cleansed. This temple needs to be cleansed. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and it's not yours, for you have been bought with a price, therefore I glorify God with your body. You know, this would probably rock somebody to their knees, but if you were in the midst of willful sin, and God audibly spoke to you and said, I'm in with you doing this, would you continue to do what you were doing? Did you say no? Did you say hope not? That's tough. That's tough. I don't think any of us are, are willfully murdering anybody or sex trafficking children or molestation, but we're talking sin, just missing the mark, not doing what God has asked you to do. What about lying to your spouse constantly? What if God whispered and said, man, you're making me a liar because I reside in you. Your temple needs to be cleansed. You need to begin to live beyond the grave. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Is what you do holy? I'm talking about outside of church. When you're by yourself, in the car. You, you know me, I'm probably the only Egyptian you know that listens to country music. But there's a, uh, there's a country song, What If the Bar Stool Spoke the Stories of the Bar? There's a lot of secrets in places like that. A lot of secrets in people's web browser. A lot of secrets in people's phones and their iPads. There's, there's some things that need to be cleansed, not only in the church, but you can affect the rest of the church by what you do. Because you're the temple. You come into the temple. You become part of the temple. And then you wonder why he drives them out, flips tables. And in John, the other time he cleanses the, the temple, he pulls, he makes a whip. I'm telling you, church, if you want the ability to live beyond the grave, there's two things. I read you the story of the triumphal entry, how he came in, what he saw coming into the city of Jerusalem, how he wept over the city because of the lost opportunity, because the dead were, were about to be dead forever, and they... they they lost the opportunity to understand that he was the Messiah and he was the Savior. And then the dead in the church and how he had to cleanse the church. He knew they were completely dead and weren't willing or able to live beyond the grave. 
There's two things that we need to understand to live beyond the grave. One is you got to come humbly to God. It's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't come in on a, on a war horse. He didn't come in with a, a group of soldiers. He, come with, he came in with a bunch of peasants, his disciples, on a donkey. Completely humble, understanding exactly what's going to happen. And the other thing you need to be able to live beyond the grave is you need to allow God to cleanse you. I'm going to tell you, we are far from perfect, every single one of us. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. I am no different. I got drama in my life. I got six kids, and none of them are perfect. And I make things worse. And when I'm hungry, it's multiplied. (laughs) I have sin in my life. But as David came to God, I have to come to the Lord with a humble heart, and I have to allow him to cleanse me. I ask you to think about this, because one of the things before Jesus left this earth, he said, I will give you my helper. The greatest thing that was done for us here that are left on the earth was the ability to have the Holy Spirit dwell in us. To have the Holy Spirit become our temple. You know that little voice saying, eh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. You know that voice that says, eh, I should probably change the channel. You know that voice where that's not the phone call you need to make. Don't answer that. That is history. That's sin. The Bible tells us that in John, he says, if you love me, you keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor it knows him, but you know him, for he dwells within your temple. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 15, verse 20, uh, um, continuing on to 25, says, These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you things and to bring in remembrance all things that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but let not your heart be troubled, let not you be afraid. Do you understand that God wouldn't... uh, God's not going to give you something you can't handle. Everything that he has given you and every plan, every vision, every dream is already in you. That seed is already in there. But it's got to be cleansed. And you've got to come to him humbly. You cannot live beyond the grave without understanding that we need help. So much so that he says, I will leave you a helper. Stand with me this morning.
I hope you have a clear understanding of this triumphal entry and how the world may make it seem, but how we need to be willing to present it. If, if Jesus himself would come in to this church here in the city of Bray, in this warehouse in the back of Lambert, would we recognize him? Would you know him? Would you sense him? Charles Spurgeon says that it's unfortunate that Americans would not know that the Holy Spirit was missing for months if Jesus took it away. That tells you that most of us are not living within the Spirit. That tells you that we are not accessing the power that God has given us. You remember he tells his disciples that they will do greater things than I did. It's because of the Spirit. It's because of the temple. Can you imagine having a helper everywhere you go with everything you see and everything you do and every word that you speak? Somebody there saying, nope, you failed right there. Don't do that again. Nope, don't do that. Or that was honoring God. We have an opportunity to live beyond the grave. But I can tell you it can't be done apart from Christ. It cannot be done apart from Christ. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle, and I'm a sinner. I'm no better than anybody else. The only thing I have that separates me from the majority of this world is Christ. Is to understand that I'm forgiven. And everything that I've done in the past has been thrown away in the sea. As far as the east is from the west. And everything I will do in the future has already been forgiven. And I don't have to deal with that stuff. I've put my faith in Christ. Some of you may be here today have not put your faith in Christ have not allowed your temple to be cleansed. Or maybe your body is not a temple yet. Because the Bible tells us that in order for your body to be a temple, you have to have the Holy Spirit. In order for you to have the Holy Spirit, you've got to accept Christ as your Savior. We're talking about Palm Sunday, the week before the resurrection. Perhaps the greatest thing that this world has ever seen. A man raised from the dead three days and called it years before. Some of us get uh, get chills when we see Steph Curry make a 30-foot shot. Some of us get chills when we see Mac makeup on 50% off. I don't know. I don't know what you I don't know what it is for you. But at some point in life, you have to understand, man, that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And if you can live for him, you won't have a sorrowful, triumphal entry. You'll be cleansed. Bow your heads with me. Father, I just come to you, Lord, right here, right now. And I'm asking that you would, um, you would do something supernatural. Just as you called out that coat, in the opposite city for the disciples to go grab. 
just as you told the owner of the colt that when you called for it, they would abide in it. I'm asking you right here, right now, that there's people here, Lord, that need some answers in their life. There are people here that need to be cleansed. There are people here that need to be a part of the temple. There are people here that want to sense that triumphal entry, that are tired of weeping over the grave, that are tired of weeping over their caskets. We know we're not going to be here forever, Lord. But we're asking right here, right now, that the folks that need you, that you would, you would nudge them and encourage them and give them a spirit of, of strength, a spirit of uh, a power, a spirit of courage, a spirit of, of faith to get out of their seat, to come up to the altar and just pray. I believe wholeheartedly in it, Father God, because you met me there. But we have to understand that you've got to come to the temple with a humble heart. And you've got to allow God to cleanse you. We read a story of him cleansing a physical temple. We've read stories of him cleansing people with the spirit of God that's deposited in them because of their faith in Christ. With every eye closed, every head bowed, I'll ask you, are you willing to be cleansed? Are you willing to be humbled? The Bible tells us that pride comes before a fall. Pride is the root of all sin. Just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. Those of you that are willing to come up and, and get with God yourself, praise the Lord. Nothing special about coming up and, and praying. You're asking the Creator, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I feel this way. I, I'm far from perfect, Lord, and I need help. I need help being a father. I need help being a, a husband, a mother, a sister, a, a bride, a wife, a uh, I need help being a temple in your temple. Whatever the case may be, we're opening up the altars. For those of you who raised your hands, I will pray for you. I will pray for you that you would come to God with humility and you would allow him to cleanse you. 